Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Vosliatis. And I'm Mr. Copeland. This is a lecture series on 8-4 notes. So if you don't have the chance, uh, opportunity to do so, please print them out or look along as we kind of read them along with you and we add in some extra detail. Yeah, so we're going through time period 1969 to 1980. The title of the chapter is Limits of a Superpower. And we're going to see the United States comes up against some uh, difficulties. And we're having to mature and evolve from a period of great growth and, and uh, success after World War II. So we're going to start with Richard Nixon's foreign policy. So he kind of inherits a bit of a mess from Lyndon Baines Johnson's war. That's the war uh, as we popularly known as the Vietnam War. And it's become LBJ's war because of his you know, uh, questionable entry based on the Gulf of Tonkin incident from previous lectures that you've heard of. So he kind of is going to run on a campaign called Peace uh, with Honor. So it's basically an idea that we need to withdraw from this conflict without looking incredibly weak. Remember, the Cold War is about PR. We need to look strong in front of the communists as well as Soviet Union and China. And we do not want to have that domino theory come into full effect. Yeah, and the, the thing that is you know difficult for us to deal with is the American government is having to think about how do we tell our people that we finally lost a war? You know, so the term peace with honor is a euphemism right, for, right. hey, guess what? We, we weren't able to win. So we're having to get out. And we say removal of troops is, once again, it's like you said, it's all about images and making sure that this Cold War battle, we do not give the Soviet Union an ability to point to a flaw of the United States. So Nixon balances on this political tightrope in a process called Vietnamization. And it's basically what we described to it. So it's his peace with honor uh, campaign actualized. So he begins to withdraw troops from 1969 to 1972. By the end of 72, we have less than 30,000 troops in Vietnam. However, he's going to, at the same exact time, arm South Vietnamese government to the teeth to defend themselves against the Viet Cong forces, which are kind of making a lot of uh, headways. So he's going to continue to do this. And under his Nixon doctrine, all other future Asian allies will receive funds as well, but of course not military commitment from the United States. Yeah. So that's a separation and a departure from the Truman Doctrine that would provide military. So you would think he'd be pretty kind of uh, popular, especially with people who are from the anti-war uh, section of this. However, uh, his own policies are going to be heavily scrutinized and criticized when people start to begin to see the full effects of, the, of, of Vietnamization. Yeah, so as he takes office... The, there's a little bit of a withdrawal. Uh, the, the commitment to withdrawal has reduced the anti-war protests. Right? But there's a significant uh, event in April of 1970 that changes that. Okay? So Nixon decides to reallocate troops from Vietnam to neighboring Cambodia. The Ho Chi Minh Trail and the networks of the communists that are going on there, he views this as a great way, and he's getting advice from his military advisors that this is a great way for us to end the conflict quickly. If you remember, Cambodia and Laos are two neighboring countries that uh, kind of were created after the breakup of it, French Indochina. So they're two neighboring countries that uh, the communists were allowed to kind of pass through those national boundaries to kind of undercut South Vietnamese forces. So this is the reason why we start to put more troops in Cambodia. So when, when Nixon announces this um, policy to remove, to reallocate troops to Cambodia, one of the most well-known protests takes place at uh, University in Ohio known as Kent State. So the, it's known as the Kent State Ohio protest. And basically it starts out as a slow peaceful movement on that first day or first night. But as you get into the evening hours on some college campuses, there can be um, a lot of hydrating going on of the al of alcohol that made things a little, event uh, a little, it, ele it elevates things to some violence where the police force is actually getting attacked by several students leaving the bars that evening, throwing bottles at them. The next day, they reconvene. There's peaceful protests. Nothing happens. However, the small group of them sets fire with a firebomb to an ROTC building. All right. This prompts the governor of Ohio to request the National Guard come in to control this because this is really a perceived threat from the right that this new left, this more violent and vigilant force amongst the progressive wing of America might be as you mentioned, the fear of Marxism and kind of this concept of we could have this at any moment, a spark could cause a widespread revolution. Throughout all the universities. And you have to remember uh, the baby boomers. The, these are the baby boomer generation. They are a large 
portion of the American population. So this is not just a small group of kids doing this. If, the idea is that if you don't shut this down now, you are going to embolden other mm-hmm. the, the the perception was Marxist circles throughout California, yeah. throughout uh, you know the deep south, throughout you know the upper northeast of our country. The mayor of the town in Kent State was the one that requested from the uh, the governor saying, if you don't shut this down, no campus will be safe across the country. And with the destruction of property in the RTC, uh, ROTC building, this is what led to that. But the le- Monday, classes resume after the long weekend. And this is where, unfortunately, four students were killed and 10 were wounded. One was paralyzed. And what happens is the National Guard opened fire and shot at some of the uh, students who were protesting. They were encouraged to, d- to disperse numerous times. And they actually imposed martial law where they were not allowed to have their normal First Amendment rights to protest. They were encouraged to move. And then the National Guard starts pushing towards them and sending them back. The sad thing is, those four students that were killed were not even part of the protest. They were just innocent bystanders trying to go between classes and lunch in the quad on campus. So the scary thing here is that the news media picks it up. There's video. There are famous photographs that we will definitely show you in class that depict the the horror of American students being shot and killed over just simply disagreeing with the policy of the president and the administration. Okay. Um, In addition to this, much fewer reported uh, was the fact that two students also died a couple, a week or so later, 11 days, Jackson State, Mississippi, a predominantly black institution. It's not a surprise that this one was not as well reported on. Right. So the in reacting to all these protests and the violence, the census violence that people begin to see either through the media or pictures or television, the Senate will move to repeal the Gulf of Tonkin resolution to kind of to rein in that unilateral authority that was previously given to Johnson back in the mid-60s. Interestingly enough, the House rejected this because there are still going to be some within the Democratic Party that are going to be pro-establishment, pro-Vietnam, and they believe that they have to check Soviet or communist uh, influence within Southeast Asia. The domino theory is still very much firmly entrenched in the elder minds of the Democratic Party. But you have to understand the youth, they're going to want to rebel because they're the ones that are ultimately going to be on the lines. They're the ones that are going to be drafted. They're the ones that are going to uh, possibly die if this allows to happen. There's a so, reason why that generation, like you said, it's like the, the men in their 40s and 50s, the older generations, they don't have as much at stake. This is a visceral reaction to your life being threatened by the, the war that you thought was going to end being extended. Because now you, your friend, your buddies, everyone on your block is now... Po- it could be you being sent over to Vietnam next. What aids this youthful, rambunctious attitude towards their government is, as we mentioned before, uh, the media is beginning to become less cooperative with governmental policies and actually more investigative to hold them accountable. As any good free media outlet should, in any good republic, they should hold the government accountable. We know in Spanish-American War, we have a concept called yellow journalists, William Randolph Hearst, Joseph Pulitzer. They're going to furnish or orchestrate pictures to kind of generate feelings to enter into uh, the, the war with Spain. Now we're beginning to see the publication of a variety of events. That brings us to the My Lai Massacre. And that happens in March of 1968. The public is not made aware of it until November of 69. And this is really critical to the already... Um, large swath of the country that is against the war, this is confirmation that this is a conflict we should be uh, no longer involved in. What the Milai Massacre was, was a a rogue element of our military, a group of about 100 soldiers under the uh, leadership of um, this man Connolly, who was eventually prosecuted for this. Uh, Under his orders, they went into a village and slaughtered 504 innocent civilians, men, women, and children. And the images of this were leaked to the, the Cleveland Plain, Plain Dealer, and then eventually they were published in Life Magazine, which was one of the more popular magazines at the time. And this was something that led to the disenchantment with the war, but also the treatment of the veterans as they came home. 
Right. I mean, it's easy to call them uh, baby killers when you, you know, if you're a young person reading about My Lai Massacre, but we have to understand that this was a small cadre of rogue uh, soldiers, you know, kind of venting their frustrations of not attacking the enemy, and they're taking it on innocence. But when they return back from the war, they're going to be spit on, be call- they're going to be called baby killers at large. All, uh, If not, you know, most veterans will do so. Not to mention, they're going to suffer from PTSD. It's something that we are now more uh, 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 open to discuss, um, but they're also uh, going to perhaps be more perceptive, uh, susceptible to alcoholic addiction, as well as a newfound drug that will be proliferated within the ranks of the v- uh, of the soldiers in Vietnam, uh, heroin. So you know, there's 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 tragedy on both sides here, um, and we have to be more aware of that. Yeah. So the the reasoning for this happening is we're not justifying it, but as you mentioned, is that. The persistent conflict in Vietnam, the fact that these soldiers were in combat zones for such extended period of time, there's a lot of trauma that they're experiencing during this conflict. And um, the frustration of not ever having the ability to confront your enemy, that you're consistently being ambushed at every turn, leads to the um, bubbling over of the emotions that led to this massacre. And this is one of several massacres that were later discovered, but this is the most high profile one because the images are leaked to the public. And that becomes a significant factor in our um, understanding of it. And we still have this today. I mean, this is a direct parallel. This couldn't be a direct parallel to Abu Ghraib. Uh, that was a town in Iraq in 2003. And it's a very similar kind of uh, thing that we see where journalists uncover a picture of uh, naked Iraqi prisoners of war being stacked under the d- dictation of U.S. soldiers. Again, not exactly, they're not following orders, but they're going to take out their frustrations on Iraqi prisoners. And this is going to really significantly alter many people's perception on the Iraq war and exactly what we're doing. So this doesn't go away. These type of incidents uh, within the military are, that often happen, and they often uh, are used to generate uh, support or uh, revulsion mm-hmm. to some long-standing wars. So and, you have to understand the parallels here. And an anti-American sentiment can be, you know, derived from these type of events, especially for the um, terrorist organizations that we're combating with now in present day. They point to these things as the reasons why America needs to be confronted. Um, and, and as you mentioned, it's that this Abu Ghraib prison showed that prisoners of war, they should be treated properly. But as you mentioned, it's the high stresses that our soldiers are consistently under, which allows these things to happen to human beings that are like all of us. None of us are perfect and they are flawed. And even our soldiers, among them, there are some that fall to these uh, you know, frailties. So um, this brings us to the other major event during Nixon's time period that really uh, was significant for the public perception of the conflict, which is known, these are known as the Pentagon Papers. And if any of you have had the opportunity to see the recent movie, The Post, from this past year, um, it it addresses the decision by the New York Times and the Washington Post to publish these papers. Basically, um, one of the members of the Nixon administration, McNamara, um, did a research paper, wanted to see what was actually happening on the ground in Vietnam and wanted to see what our failures were, what our successes were, how could we improve our policies. And this started in the early period of um, even LBJ's term, and it was kept a secret because what they found out was we're probably not going to be able to win. And we kept that a secret for nearly a decade. So if you think about the thousands of lives that were sacrificed when our American the leaders in our American government knew that the war was unwinnable, but we kept throwing and escalating more and more troops into the conflict. This was really the uproar that continued to confirm the fact that the Vietnam War should come to an end. This occurs in 1971, and the man who's responsible for leaking them from the CIA was Daniel Ellsberg. So with all of this in mind, um, it, it shouldn't surprise you that Nixon is going to have face a lot of pressure to end the war quickly. So he's going to kind of uh, order his Secretary of State at the time, Henry Kissinger, to go arrange secret diplomatic talks with Lu Duc Tho, the Prime Minister of North Vietnam. And uh, after those secret talks, Kissinger kind of boasts a little bit about there will be some sort of peace arrangement. There will be peace, quote, at hand by the fall of 1972. However, as the negotiations start to to stall, Nixon continues his bombing campaign in Cambodia in order
order to pressure this armistice at the anger uh, of the youthful protesters. Um, by January of 1973, they finally reached some sort of decisions in the Paris Peace Accords, and it will basically resolve that the United States will agree to completely withdraw from Vietnam. North uh, Vietnamese forces, the Viet Cong, promises to release uh, over 500 prisoners of war. There would be a ceasefire between the two regions of North and South Vietnam, and of course there would be host of free elections, something that uh, previously we wouldn't want to do uh, back in 1954 under Eisenhower, but we're now kind of more open to doing the same thing here. Um, the armistice will allow us to leave the war, however... The ending total results will have about 58,000 United States soldiers that are dead and a more grand total of approximately 1 million people uh, on both sides and about $118 billion Billion. on the war. Um, So this will also kind of continue and and spark the inflationary cycle that we will see in the earlier uh, years of Nixon's tenure uh, in 1970s. And we'll talk about that later on throughout the podcast. Okay, so we also have to confront um, with Nixon's foreign policy. The other two areas that are most important in the Cold War would be our relationship with China and the Soviet Union. So detente is how it can be described, which is simply a deliberate reduction of the Cold War tensions. It was Nixon's um, goal to try and take the the frustration and the tensions surrounding Cuban Missile Crisis and the remainder of LBJ's tenure with them and get to a point where we can have conversations and engage with China and um, the Soviet Union to hopefully come to a better understanding and potentially end the Cold War. And it's perfect because, you know, Nixon, uh, you know, made his political career on being a hardline anti-communist prosecutor. So he this is this is another way of doing real politique. It's a pragmatic approach, right? No one would doubt Nixon's intentions when he went to Beijing. If it were someone like, you know, Hubert Humphrey or even someone within even a conservative element of the LBJ in the Democratic Party, uh, they would might accuse him of being too soft yes. on communism, very much like how people accuse Truman on being too soft on communism a few decades before. So he uses his political clout to kind of start brokering some sort of negotiations between a country that we really haven't um, recognized um, politically since their revolution in 1949. And and, and the, the strategy is pretty simple. If we identify some sort of tenable relationship with China, we can form a wedge between them and the Soviet Union, and we could pressure the Soviet Union to do something that we would like them to do. So this is kind of like a really clever way for Nixon to do this, but he's going to kind of host a lot of diplomatic channels, and he himself is going to visit uh, Mao Zedong in February 1972. So this is months and months and years of actual secret diplomatic channels, again aided by his Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, and eventually at the end uh, of these meetings, uh, in 1979, the United States government uh, will feel more comfortable politically to recognize Mao Zedong's Communist Party as the official uh, party of China. So, I mean, think about that 49 to 79. That's that's 30 years of unrecognition uh, of, uh, of Mao's uh, legitimacy. And now we're doing this again for our own pragmatic considerations. Okay. And the other, the other uh, relationship with the Soviet Union that's important is arms control. All right, things had gotten out of hand with the arms race, and Nixon tried to use his relationship with China to pressure the Soviet Union to try to agree to uh, limiting ballistic missiles. So this is becomes known as ABMs, anti-ballistic missiles, excuse me. And this is a new technology which would have ended the arms race. If one side has the ability to shoot down the other's nuclear weapons when they're on the way, then they don't have to worry about the retaliation, the mutually assured destruction, which was maintaining the peace that we had had up until this point. And that brings us to the strategic arms limitation talks known as SALT. So the USA is uh, able to pressure the Soviets to consent to limited disarmament. We both realized to bring it down a notch to hopefully make sure that this does not become the generation where uh, World War III begins. So those are his two crowning achievements in foreign policy, his connection uh, of Beijing and, of course, uh, helping initiate the strategic arms limitations talks that we uh, that Mr. Copeland talked about. So let's shift gears here for Nixon's domestic policy. Yeah, so Congress is still democratic, uh, dominated by Democrats. Nixon is, as you mentioned, a hardliner, a conservative. He, he uh, campaigns on being the law and order president, the Climate in the 1960s is very volatile at home. Protests, 
civil rights. There's a lot going on. And there's, there's a pushback from a large swath of the population that is wanting things to get back to the way they always were. Let's keep, let's keep things in order. So what Nixon really focuses on is by him bringing the ideas of conservatism to the public, these ideas start to really shift the public consciousness. And political opinions in the country start to trend towards conservatism. And we see this uh, culminate in the 1980s and 1990s when um, a lot of reform measures come to a lot of social So problems. even if we can't, can't achieve these conservative domestic policy agendas, um, the ide- ideology will start to ferment in the minds of many of these Americans. Um, so one in which that he wanted to do was the introduction of the Family Assistance Plan, which is interesting because it was uh, uh, co-sponsored by uh, liberal um, Patrick Moynihan. And the idea was to replace uh, the inadequacies of the welfare program at the time with a guaranteed annual income for working Americans. So prior to this time, one of the issues, even though the idea of welfare was, uh, was a good thing, um, you would only get welfare or some sort of funds if you met certain qualifications. This family assistance plan, if passed, would provide a guaranteed income regardless, let's say, if you know you have a husband at home that's not working. Um, it's also going to provide um, some sort of um, in, like uh, incentive program to get people to join the workforce, um, something that was not explicitly mentioned in the welfare program. So it's interesting that one of our more conservative presidents is also kind of on board, at least uh, officially, uh, promoting this family assistance plan. But what's interesting is that uh, this initiative will be blocked in Congress. They'll never make it through law. Yeah, there's, it's, it's funny because the conservatives thought it was too generous of a program, and the liberals said it didn't quite go far enough. So that's why they couldn't get enough support for it to pass. And um, this concept of new federalism is something that is under Nixon's domestic policy. And the federal government had grown so much in responsibility since the New Deal and the Great Depression that we're trying to shift some of the responsibility from the federal government to the states. All right, We don't have to uh, – the tax rates at the federal level were being responsible for a lot of federal programs that conservatism is trying to make sure that we are putting some of the responsibility back to the states instead of creating possibly a nanny state. And it, it sounds good on paper, and I understand the concept of autonomy, but if you kind of – a big criticism of this is – you know, you have 50 states, you give them block grants, you give them very little uh, direction on how to spend these, 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 these monies. A good critique is, well, are they going to be spending it for people that need it? Or are they going to put it in areas in which will profit other people who already have yeah. assets? So, you know, it's not as simple as just, you know, giving this individuality back to the states. It's uh, what about the states that are not using the monies appropriately? Yeah. Um, at the same time, however, you can argue, well, who's to say that the federal government is uh, allocating these funds properly? So there's this weird philosophical de- debate that starts to happen around this time period over the concept of new federalism. And, of course, we're going to have people like Reagan and the Bushes championed this thing all the way up until George W. Bush in the 21st century. So keep this in mind. This concept of federal monies and and who should spend them is happening. I think this is interesting. Don't get confused with your you know stall your staunch conservatives in the 1920s. Notice they're fighting over federal monies. So regardless of party, everyone has recognized the legitimacy and power of the federal government. Now it, the debate is over. How should we spend those money? Right, exactly. So it's not like back then where people were fighting over who will get the power. It's already been uh, established that the federal government is here to provide money and funds for these states. Who can spend it is the issue. Because the federal government during the civil rights movement had to step in to make sure certain liberties and protections were given to people. And the argument here is over. Do you need them to tell us how to spend or can we figure out ourselves how to spend it? But the critic, as you mentioned, will be concerned. What if they don't spend it the way that it's intended for? Like imagine George Wallace, the governor of Alabama. I believe he's still a governor. Or at, he, that moment, yes. at this moment, could you imagine giving him lots of monies and then saying, well, we're not going to force you to allocate these funds to the working poor or the people. And we can't talk about poverty in this country without also talking about race. Could you imagine someone like Governor Wallace? Allowing those funds to spill into the people that need right. Go spend it to the people that need it. Right. I don't know so, if all the black families that are poor are going to get as much as all the right. black families. Right. So, so it's a little bit more complicated than just saying, "Oh, well, the states ought to have it." So anyway, we we we're digressing here, but we just kind of want to make this this a point where it's a little, little bit more uh, complicated when when you give the authority 
um, of how to spend to the mm-hmm. states. Um, but you know, Nixon is going to show his true colors when um, he tries to circumvent the actual programs already in place. He knows he's the executive. He can't make laws. He's not the judicial. He can't interpret laws or strike them down. But as the executive, he can enforce them or not enforce them. So he chooses to impound some of the funds or just not spend some of the funds that were kind of um, pre-allocated to some of the social welfare programs that we see in Great Society campaign. And of course, he's going to get the, the actions, you know, reaction from the courts. They're going to basically say, you can't do that. Regardless of your personal distaste of these programs, a president must carry out the law of the land. Um, and Nixon will be forced to do that. So we do have a president that is trying to play a very interesting political game here, not only in foreign policy on the tightrope of Vietnam, but he's trying to do a domestic tightrope between the Democrats, looking like he's helping the poor, but at the same time not really advocating for these social programs. So he's an interesting figure. I feel like we can characterize his presidency as trying to balance um, between all these forces. So that brings us to Nixon's economic policy. So in the 1970s, the U.S. economy is a very uh, unique situation where we have gotten so much out of the past 30 years that there's an economic slowdown. But the unusual thing is at the same time, there is high inflation. So usually um, inflation is associated with too much money being in circulation because everyone is doing so well. Um, But when the economic slowdown comes, inflation is continuing. So they refer to this as stagflation because it's so unique. Usually, if you look at supply and demand, you would think when there's um, fewer people working, when there's less money being paid out to working class people that are going to go by, demand will be lowered. But with the demand lowering, prices wouldn't be able to keep going up. But in this situation, they were. And that's what made it so difficult to try and combat. Um, Nixon tries to cut federal spending to try and reduce inflation. He ends up causing a recession. Employment continues to go up. All right. So Nixon is forced with the the um, a conservative is forced with deciding maybe we need to spend our way out of this. And this is where he adopts some Keynesian methods. So similar to the New Deal policies of FDR, he is trying to put money into uh, the economy to help the middle class and blue collar American workers and get out of this difficult time. Yeah, I mean, the big thing about Keynesian economics that you remember is that, you know, the government has, uh, you know, more. In, should have more influence over free market. Um, and, and, and how is that going to be actualized is through monetary policy and fiscal policy. So for monetary policy, you know, getting the Federal Reserve Bank to raise perhaps interest rates, which would discourage borrowing. That would be one way to kind of stop inflation. Uh, mo- uh, monetary or fiscal uh, policy would be trying to provide programs in which you can employ people so they can start to have wages. Wages equal spending power. Spending power kind of like churns the river, so to speak, of the economy. So, you know, it's not just simply deficit spending, um, but uh, Nixon, um, who would probably naturally be opposed to Keynesian economics, he probably opposed more neoclassical, you know, Adam Smithian Smithian, uh, economic policy, is going to adopt it himself. So this is another tendency for presidents to kind of adopt economic policies that they otherwise wouldn't agree with on the campaign trail, but he sees the, you know, the efficacy of it. So we have him doing this um, for working class Americans. Why? He doesn't want to lose that vote. You know, you have to understand that, you know, you could speak all you can about, you know, not wanting to increase federal control of the economy, but if it's going to help you win a next election, that's another, that's another another idea. Um, He's also going to try to improve the U.S. balance of trade in the international uh, arena. So we want to kind of maintain that surplus. We want to access free markets abroad, and we want to be the main suppliers. So by August of 1971, he's going to impose a 90-day wage and price freeze, kind of stop to kind of make sense of what's going on. He's going to take the dollar and he's going to officially put it off the gold standard at the chagrin and the anger of bankers who are probably going to lose a little bit of money. But again, this is going to stabilize the economy. It's going to help devalue the currency and help take care of stagflation um, compared to other foreign currencies. He will also raise a 10% surtax on all imported goods. As you know, that could you can think of it like a like a tariff um, it's in order for, for us to keep our hegemony on uh, producing goods across the, the country. So 1972, the economy finally comes out of the recession. But one of the things that uh, the Congress decides to approve is that we should, our Social Security, our mandated, our um, 
spending that we have to take care of the elderly that have been around since new, the New Deal era, um, that we should have automatic raises within that to account for the cost of living instead of having to worry about Congress having to have a debate over it every 10 years or so. So this leads to budget problems in the future when we have some inflation issues later in the 70s. But um, this is something that is crucial because if you and I are putting in Social Security um, into our Social Security fund now, we can't think that our benefits that our parents are getting or our grandparents are getting present day will be the same as ours in 30, 40, 50 years. It just wouldn't work the way inflation and the economy works around. Now, another interesting thing that's passed in 1972, which half of those of you listening should be pretty interested in, was that Congress passed what's known as Title IX. And it's a law that ends discrimination in schools that receive federal funding. This was wide-reaching, but the biggest effect that it really had was on uh, the rise of women's sports in the next generation. So one of the things that I always argue is that part of why our women's sports are the best in the world, especially our soccer team, but our men's soccer team didn't even make the World Cup this year, is because of the fact that we were the, among the first countries in the world to start giving women and young girls equal opportunity for athletics. Um, soccer is a global sport, but yet we were the ones to give our the current generation playing in the last 20 years the leg up. So schools must provide equal athletic opportunities. The reason why we have varsity teams for both men and women in our school rather than the men have all the varsity teams and the girls just have a couple clubs is because of the Title IX legislation. And this is really the foundation of the women's equality movement. You have to think about this as um, an extension of civil rights, but also we are looking at young girls not as to be cast aside and thinking, well, they're just future mothers and future wives. They should have the same opportunities for education and same opportunities of every part of the education, including athletics, and all funding needs to be balanced out to um, justify that. So it's interesting in the, you know, despite Nixon's personal conservatism, we're also having a lot of liberal policies being pushed primarily due to uh, the Democratic majority of Congress. However, by his second election, he's going to try to change strategies to kind of battle this, this, this tension. And we're going to call this Nixon's Southern strategy. Because Nixon realized in the election of 1968 that he wasn't that popular. He only won 43% of the popular vote. So he's going to try to see if he can, like he did with China and the Soviets, put a wedge between the multitude of factions within the Democratic Party that he began, to, him and his acolytes began to identify uh, throughout the 60s and early 70s. Who were these people, this block that he wanted to target? They were known as the silent majority. They were neither silent nor majority, but he's going to use these people to gain, to garner their support and actually hopefully win against his re-election. Who were they? Well, the thing that's important about this silent majority is that the, the terminology was very carefully chosen because he, when he's speaking out and there are protesters about uh, fighting and arguing over the Vietnam War in front of the White House, he is saying they don't represent all of Americans. He's trying to connect with the silent majority is the older, more conservative, white American that... They're, they're politely just allowing these small minority groups to just hijack this country. That's the, the, that's the impression. Is, yeah, and the media the has been hyping up this idea of these protesters are America. Right. He's saying, no, I know no. another member. Right. I know the America they're more that polite. is hardworking, right. that it gets to work, goes to work every day. The patriotic America, which means supporting the war. Right. And Cold War policies, the more conservative you are, the more likely you are to support Nixon in these efforts. So the silent majority was a way to connect with those people saying, I know that those people are the people that are the real, true Americans, not these ones that are so critical of our country. So those voters are much more likely to be the white Southern Democrats, the Northern Catholic blue-collar workers, and suburbanites who are frustrated with a lot of the change that they were seeing. This all is happening because, in large part, the reaction to the Civil Rights Acts that had passed just six or seven years before. So when you have the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, remember, LBJ signs the, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act saying, this is going to lose the South for the Democrats of the next generation. And then the culmination of that we don't really see until the 72 election, because in 68, George Wallace is gathering that segregationist uh, wing of the conservatives. Now Nixon is taking advantage of the fact that George Wallace is not nearly as uh, um, viable. And you have to understand how these series of federal legislation policies permeate the psyche of 
you know, Democrats that had ancestors uh, that fought in the Confederacy, right? A war in which they claimed was only solely for states' rights. So, you know, in their heads, this is, again, an overcrouching federal government trying to, you know, um, go against the majority and the will of those people. So, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's all tied into civil rights and race as well as other uh, anti-war protests so to the new those left. those are the things that they're frustrated with. Like, like what specifically? Uh, well, well, one in which, you know, uh, the, the, the Marxist ideologies that seem to have been celebrated by students across the nation and it's interesting you could see a lot of parallels today i mean if you talk to your parents the number one critique that they might have on higher education is that it's you know dominated by ultra anti-patriotic leftists we had the same uh concerns for some of these people within this region of the country uh black militancy um forget the reason why huey newton and bobby seal formed the black panthers or even you know malcolm x started to talk about black separatism and nationalism because de facto segregation was still in effect despite these lofty federal policies forget that forget the reasoning why they wanted to defend themselves against white supremacy the impression was these black people are getting rights and they're taking radical and unnecessary steps to achieve them. So it's going to scare a lot of these people known as the silent majority to kind of reevaluate their party allegiance to the Democratic Party and maybe consider maybe uh, more conservative ideologies uh, that are going to be pr uh, proposed by the Republicans. Yeah, one of the things that sometimes we always associate racial, racial issues and desegregation issues with the South. But that is not the case. Our entire country has the de facto segregation that we've been talking about, especially here on Long Island. But what, two of the areas that are most well known for the situation here, known as school desegregation and busing policies, were Chicago and Boston. And specifically in Boston, there was a large amount of resistance from the population in these white communities that now had um, school buses from their tax dollars taking uh, black students from their neighborhoods and bringing them and dropping them off in front of their school to integrate the school systems. So there's a large part of resistance by the entire community and um, it's not something that you can associate just with the segregated South that it, just because it was legal there doesn't mean that these, these ideas and the um, desire to be separate from a lot of these white people in these cities was something that was real. So this is what makes th this block of people powerful because it's not just to one specific region. And it was kind of hard to identify because if it's going on in the north as well as the south, someone like uh, Nixon is going to kind of be able to take advantage of this identification. So how is he going to, to appeal to these people, these large mass of people? Uh, well, he's going to ask circuit courts in the south to discontinue desegregation mandates. So basically actively t tell them to, you know, don't follow these mandates or orders from the Supreme Court. So this is pretty big. I, I don't know how much weight or teeth could be behind this, but it's symbolic. It shows that the president is supportive of some of these uh, initiatives that were passed. It would or be opinion. one thing if you right. are, our community voted and our legislature passed policies in our local town that we are making the decision to do the busing policies because we believe in our community this is what is best for us. But when it's from the top down, right. when it's, an, you could argue, an activist judge right. making you change and you're not involved in the decision. It's not That's the will of the people. It's, it's forced upon according to them, their perception. So there's a legitimacy to that argument of the, that they're not being consulted. To make them even more happier, the silent majority, he's going to nominate two Southern conservatives to the Supreme Court. Because if you remember, uh, a big complaint of the court was there's a lot of liberal judges there. So if you replace them with conservatives, then he might be able to roll back some of these mandates through uh, test case litigation. It works both ways, folks. It's not just liberal civil rights organizations do this. You can have conservative civil rights organizations doing this as well. Clement Hainsworth and G. Harold Carswell are going to be the, the, the two that he picks. They will be denied positions from the Senate, which is held a democratic majority but it didn't matter it's the impression that we have a, a, a we have a republican that's fighting for us right that it's these are symbolic actions that are going to help those people go to the polls and vote for republican he's also going to order his vice president spiro agnew to attack the press for being liberal and make verbal assaults on anti-war protesters so again these are all like little marketing tools that he can be able to kind of bring them back yeah the the issue of Associating anti-war protests with un-American activity, or like you said, the new left, radical communist or Marxist activity, is an effort to legitimize and drape himself and his campaign with, or, with the American flag around his shoulders. And that's something that's going to be helpful for him. Now, the war in court that we spoke so much uh, about in the previous podcast, 
Warren eventually retires in 1969, and that brings us to the Burger Court. Nixon appoints the more conservative Warren Burger to the court, and he, he finds there are several major rulings under his um, administration, uh, in, uh, under his time as Chief Justice. And the, a few of these major rulings are really, uh, it's ironic that Nixon appoints him because he really angers a lot of conservatives with them. So he eventually creates the ruling that it mandates busing to achieve racial balance in schools, going against what Nixon just recently tried to get them out of. Or support, yeah. Yeah, or, or support. And, and one of the crucial things in a case known as Foreman versus, or Furman versus Georgia, there are more strict guidelines for issuing the death penalty. So the death penalty is abolished for a four-year period in America because we've, under the Eighth Amendment, where there is no cruel and unusual punishment allowed in this country, in some cases, we view that the current practices in our country for the death penalty are cruel and unusual. And until we're able to prove a way in which they are not, for four years, we have a situation where the death penalty is outlawed. And the worst you could get for any type of capital offense would be life imprisonment. What's interesting about that is that um, some people that are for capital punishment were able to kind of reinstate some of those uh, the, 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 those penalties throughout the states by offering a new way of taking out uh, people accused of crimes, uh, the lethal injection um, that will be used in the 80s, 90s, up until the 2000s. But now, based on current research, we're beginning to see that the three chemicals used to make that horrible cocktail of execution um, actually does... Uh, it doesn't work all the time. There's three chemical agents, one to numb the, 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 the subject, one to uh, put them uh, unconscious, and of course to actually uh, eviscerate their organs. Well, if the mixtures are not perfect, you might have them consciously aware as their organs are slowly being eviscerated. So we are also right now currently having this debate over whether or not the lethal injection should be legal under the Eighth Amendment, as Mr. Copeland has said. And we have to start being more conscious of what's going on beyond our, our school walls. Yeah, and that, like an individual that is being put to death by the state, we don't believe in torture in this country. And one of the issues with the, the cocktails you mentioned is some people, there have been some botched executions in the last five to ten years as the supply of some of these chemicals has been in short, um, has been difficult to acquire. So um, it's in a, that's another conversation to have later on. But this also brings us to the landmark case in 1973 where the Burger Court rules against the state laws that are prohibiting abortion practices known as Roe v. Wade. Yeah, and that's going to be basically um, a case in which a woman named uh, Norma McCorvey, uh, she's going to go as uh, an alias known as Jane Roe. She's going to sue the attorney uh, general of Dallas County. Uh, his name is Henry Wade for kind of uh, preventing her and a group of other women to have access to abortion. Um, it, what's interesting is the attorney general is not is going to prohibit that. He himself is going to ignore an earlier court ruling that allows her to do this. They bring it up to the Supreme Court case in 1973. The Supreme Court rules in favor of Roe or Norma McCorvey in which uh, they cite privacy rights for citizens, that the government cannot restrict access to abortion under the principle of getting too involved in the private affairs of individuals. And this was based on a court decision made by Griswold v. Connecticut, which was a case uh, that made a similar ruling in which a woman that was proliferating um, planned parenthood or contraceptive information to marital couples are also going to be protected under this privacy uh, this privacy precedent interpreted by the justices. So we're beginning to see a government that's starting to say we are not going to get involved in the private affairs of these people. So it's not mandating abortions, it's just allowing women to have the choice or option. So this is where we begin to have the pro-choice, and that's really the, the, the basis of the argument is, again, not to mandate abortions, but to have women have the ability to choose between them. And there's no state shall obstruct that ability for a woman to make that choice. Yeah, the um, conversation between you and your doctor is between you and your doctor. The state will not be in between that decision any longer. That's the basis of it. And um, that concept of privacy helps expand the concept of privacy that even conservatives and liberals use for the next generation in a lot of test case litigation that we'll see later on. Um, and and the, the last contributing factor of the Burger Court that we're going to mention really comes to bear with the Watergate scandal that we're going to get to later on in the notes was that eventually there are tapes, recordings of Nixon's conversations in the Oval Office 
that the president must hand over to the United States prosecutors. He cannot keep them and say that they are his own um, possessions. Well, this is huge because this actually kind of um, overpowers the executive privilege um, that the presidents can often make when handing over secret information or recorded information within the House because executive privilege is the ability for a president to kind of withhold information because it might perhaps um, violate or jeopardize national security interests. So what makes this really interesting is that the courts are creating a precedent that, well, the president doesn't always have the right to cite executive privilege. So this is an interesting thing where, you know, a freedom of expression, security, uh, the, 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 the judicial branch, again, attempting to overpower or at least check the power of the presidency is in play here. So I have to make this very clear that like Earl Warren with Eisenhower, Warren Berger is also going to kind of uh, be uh, a thorn at Nixon's uh, side, um, especially when he is under investigation for uh, breaking in or at least uh, endorsing the break-in of the Watergate complex on the Democratic National Headquarters. We'll talk about that later. So the election of 1972, um, this is really big because he's going to win uh, with an overwhelming 61% of the popular vote. And the reason why is mostly due to his foreign policy successes with uh, Beijing, uh, gaining those connections to Beijing, as well as the SALT agreements. The other thing is, obviously, that silent majority that he had been advocating for, he is able to win many of them over with the stressing of those issues we mentioned earlier. And coincidentally, it coincides with the populist candidate that had been uh, winning some of those Southern Democrat votes that were segregationist, George Wallace. He sudden re suddenly retires from politics leading up to it, which gives him a good group of those, those southern states. Interestingly enough, there was an assassination attempt on his life, which caused him to be paralyzed, which yeah. prompted the sudden retirement. So it's interesting, had he not had that assassin try to do that, um, it would have split, taken away some of the votes from the silent majority. The other thing that actually helped him win is that the Democrats happened to nominate a very liberal, anti-war, anti-establishment candidate in Senator George McGovern. So this became a situation where the country wasn't quite... Uh, identifying with those ideas in this present moment in 1972. It's easy to make uh, parallels to the 2016 election, to the election of 1972. Um, it also begins to shift two regions that were most notably uh, Democrats, uh, democratically held by the New Deal. The Sun Belt and the suburban voters are going to become to shift from Democrat to Republican. So the Sun Belt is this region that spans all the way from the South throughout the West. So these are where the, again, the multi, uh, the military industrial complex, a lot of these in industries are there, and you're going to have a lot of people that are kind of making their money and profit for that. So we're beginning to see the South becoming more red than blue, and it's going to have a significant impact on modern politics that we still see today. So that brings us to Watergate and the downfall of Nixon and his administration. And it's interesting because um, there's probably not more, uh, there's not a time period more written about or talked about in our last hundred years than the Watergate scandal along with uh, Nixon's presidency because it's so unique. But to start and understand what happened at Watergate, you have to understand why there were burglars at the Watergate Hotel that night. And Nixon forms this organization known as CREEP. It sounds bad already, right. but it's, 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 the acronym is for Committee to Re-Elect the President. And it's an effort to do some shady, maybe dirty tricks, you could say, to promote Richard Nixon. And also, it's a directive to take down this man named Ed Muskie, who seemed to be the Democratic, um, the leading candidate for the Democratic uh, nomination. And the most threatening to Nixon's election. Yes, exactly. So they are caught breaking into the Democratic National Headquarters in the um, Washington, D.C. hotel, Watergate Hotel. And it's a Watergate complex where they are in an effort to, apparently it was a bugging of the Democratic offices. So initially, it just seemed like a third-rate burglary, as it was referred to by someone in the Nixon administration. But as more information came to light, we started to see a connection between the break-in and Nixon himself specifically with the cover-up. And that's the important thing. So after that, we, you know, uh, the, these guys get caught, there's going to be uh, an investigation to find out, well, who are these people? Because keep in mind that Creep, the, the people within this organization, they were kind of like... 
I don't want to describe them as thugs, but they were. They were very informal people. They had very uh, indirect connections to Nixon, and that's the whole point. This was designed to discredit his enemies and promote him. The furthest away he was in connection to Creep, the better that we can he can mention plausible deniability. He could be he can distance himself from this uh, this this connection to the burglary. One of the things that unfortunately for Nixon. One of those members that were there at the Watergate that night happened to be a former CIA official. So it's very rare that you have people doing burglaries that have hundreds in their wallet. Right. Such high-profile. High-profile jobs. And some of them describe themselves as anti-communists, as professions. So it was a little bit of a... Uh, inquiry into why someone of that type of history would be involved in this type of activity. So as the federal court justice John Sirica starts sentencing these burglars or trying to kind of undergo this investigation, it will be revealed that there will be some alleged misappropriation of funds, as well as some mentioning of pardons. So now this is just rumor, but this is enough to kind of get more people to investigate further a possible connection between Creep and uh, Richard Nixon. Yeah, so some campaign funds to re-elect the president. Those checks could be found in these burglars' um, bank accounts, and that's what led to the investigation growing. And keep in mind, this is not only abuse of executive authority, if this was true, but it's also an abuse of the taxpayer dollars. So this is why this is worthy of investigation. But like many things, it is not the crime, but often the cover-up that gets someone in trouble. So for the first two or three years when this occurs, it's basically under the radar. Nobody is aware of it. But eventually, when there is the investigation that is spreading to um, Congress, Nixon aides, there's H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman. They are forced to resign after John Dean, his testimony, links the president to the cover-up. Okay, so one of the things that happens is there's a revelation that there are tapes in the Oval Office that Nixon was recording every conversation there. And these secret tapes could have evidence to verify some of the testimony by many of those that said Nixon was involved, specifically John Dean. And so they were there was an inquiry to try and acquire them. Nixon says, as you mentioned earlier, executive privilege is why he will not have to turn these over. And this goes to the Supreme Court. And the decision to kind of demand Nixon to turn this will stall for a few months. So it's not going to be until 1974 when he's going to actually have to uh, follow a you know judicial mandate to do so. So, you know, citing executive privilege privilege is a really good way of kind of stalling the investigation. And in right? a completely unrelated investigation, his vice president, Spiro Agnew, is forced to uh, resign because he's basically taking bribes while he was m governor of Maryland. And so all of a sudden, in trying to decide who his vice president would be, he chooses Gerald Ford, partially because of the fact he sees what might be coming in Watergate and gets the relationship with Ford that if it comes to it, you're going to pardon me and everyone associated. So this investigation is not the only thing that's plaguing, uh, you know, uh, Nixon's second tenure of office. But Congress is now attempting to have a spine and start to kind of rein in that unilateral authority that they gave to LBJ. So they're going to pass what we call the War Powers Act. And it's in response to Nixon's authorization of 3,500 seeking secret bombing raids in Cambodia. So by November of that year, uh, Congress will pass this legislative act, which will require by law the president to report to Congress within 48 hours of any type of military action that he approves of. And then if that action goes beyond 60 days, he would have to he would he would have to ask Congress for approval and then an additional 30 days to withdraw if Congress uh, decides against it. So it's interesting back then it's a perfect way to rein in the presidency but it's a good thing to think about as AP students is now that we have technology that could probably get we could take out a problem uh, way 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 sooner should the War Powers Act kind of be edited to adjust to the 21st century. So that's something you could keep in mind. The other thing occurring in that fall was the October war and impending oil embargo. October 6, 1973, Egypt and Syria launched an offensive against Israel on Yom Kippur. And the, their hope is to regain territory lost in the Six-Day War just eight, uh, six years earlier. And what happens is that Nixon shows the support for Israel that the United States has always had, which is the U.S. nuclear forces are on alert. And we airlift about $2 billion worth of arms to try and help them um, in their efforts to combat the conflict. Because of this, the Israelis are going to be able to kind of push back Egyptian and Syrian forces and turn the tides of war in their favor. 
uh, OPEC, as we did, we talked about in previous lectures, are going to kind of be a conglomeration of these Persian Gulf states, and they're going to be very unhappy with this decision. Primarily speaking, Israel stands to be, in their eyes, a puppet state for the United States to kind of be a buffer zone for any type of uh, influence for the Soviets, but as as as, as also uh, Arab influence in the region. So they're going to respond uh, to U.S. intervention by placing an embargo or boycott on oil. It's going to have a significant impact on our domestic economy. Yeah, the the, the emergence of oil being the most important commodity on the international trade is why this oil shortage causes inflation back at home, a loss of manufacturing jobs, and it lowers our standard of living. So the, the this is part of the reason why you see a, a, a beginning of a switch between the United States cars to some smaller Japanese cars uh, because of some of these loss of United States jobs. Japanese cars, uh, compared to U.S. cars, they don't need as much gas, and that's the reason why they're doing that. So we're beginning to see that OPEC, or these series of uh, Arab nations, can have a significant impact on our economy. So this is where we start to see external factors starting to affect us at home. Congress will impose, interestingly enough, the 55-mile-per-hour speed limit to ration on gas consumption. Uh, they will also authorize the controversial ga ga gas pipeline to tap oil reserves in Alaska which would have a tremendous impact uh, on the on the environment and as well as a lot of the uh, preser preserves that were previously kind of uh, placed under federal protection during the progressive era. But none of these, unfortunately, were able to stave off the effects of the embargo and our economy is affected pretty significantly. Um, now, the Watergate scandal that seemed to have died down emerges once again. And dis despite his successful visits to Moscow and Cairo, Nixon's popularity continued to slide as the Watergate scandal or controversy was in, became in the news, and this leads to his eventual resignation. October of 1973, Nixon appears to obstruct justice. He fires Archibald Cox, and this is what ends up becoming known as the Saturday Night Massacre. Archibald Cox was the attorney general. He's a special prosecutor, actually. So oh. it's not, you know, in the in the era of us right now, you could think of him as the Robert M M Mueller of our, of his times. He was kind of a bipartisan uh, counsel to kind of go over the Watergate scandal. And what basically happens is Nixon orders his attorney general Elliot Richardson to fire Archibald Cox because technically yes. the attorney general has the authority to do so. Well, yeah, the president Elliot, can't do it himself. Elliot Richardson, of course, does not want to do that because it's not only a conflict of interest but it kind of shows uh, uh, a presumption of guilt on the part of the president. So he kind of resigns in protest to this order. Then the deputy AG, William Ruckelhaus, will be asked by Nixon again to fire Archibald Cox, which, in fact, Richard Ruckelhaus, like Richardson, will resign in protest. It will take Robert Bork, the deputy to the deputy of the AG, the third in command, so to speak, of the Justice Department, to finally fire the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, which will be known as the Saturday Night Massacre. This will have a devastating effect on the image of the president who again is taking really powerful and continued steps to obstruct uh, an otherwise bipartisan investigation into his uh, his connection to creep and the Watergate break-in. So these actions lead to the House of Representatives drawing up uh, articles of impeachment and impeachment proceedings begin. This coincides later in April 1974 where Nixon is forced to release re release these Watergate tapes. Um, Conveniently, there's about 18 and a half minutes suddenly that is missing. It appears to have been accidentally erased by his secretary. Um, but we understand later on that it was intentional action. So the House Judiciary Committee votes these articles of impeachment in three categories. Obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and contempt of Congress by not following what the Congress asks. And the tapes end up implicating Nixon in the cover-up only days after the Watergate scandal. So you have members of his um, administration reporting to him about what happens at Watergate, and his initial reaction is, we need to make sure that this is covered up and no one knows about now, it. Now, keep this in mind, it implicated, so the fact that we have 18 and a half minutes um, that we, we don't have access to, it does not directly connect him to uh, to actually the burglary, but it connects him to trying to cover it up. And that's what Mr. Copeland was trying to tell you before, that we were going to probably remove the president, not for necessarily ordering or authorizing the break-in of Watergate, but his attempt to uh, cover up this scandal. So that's what got him. Preventing us to go through the normal process of justice. And that all comes to his resignation, which occurs August 9th in 1974, just two years after being elected in an incredible landslide. Which is interesting because had he done nothing, let his paranoia be checked, he probably would have been fine. 
but because of this and ever the political realist he decides to resign before uh the the, the house moves to impeachment and then followed by senate's conviction and removal of the office so, so it's important to note we still have not had a president removed from office through impeachment there have been several brought up on impeachment charges, but no one technically removed. He was forced to resign uh, to avoid that public embarrassment. And the significance of this for our system is twofold. First, it proves that our checks and balances actually work. The House of Representatives can bring up articles of impeachment and threaten to check the power of the president. But it's going to contribute to this fear of an overreaching executive, and it's going to be a significant loss of faith in government. So, you know, today we're living in a world where people just roll their eyes when we hear scandal after scandal. Well, this is the first time where we start to see a president lie to the American people and use agencies such as the CIA to kind of create a wild goose chase for the FBI to investigate the Watergate scandal, to, to use his power and to pressure people in the Justice Department to fire people that are looking for truth. We're beginning to question our leaders in terms of the truth. And the moment you do that, folks, it really starts to undermine democracy. And the basis of all functioning democracies uh, it relies on trust. And this is one of the reasons why the Watergate is the beginning of the end in terms of the public's faith in our government. And so we'll close out the story on Nixon with the reason why he was pardoned. And everyone involved in that investigation was pardoned. And that is what some categorize as, once again, another corrupt bargain, similar to what we had several generations ago. But Ford decides to pardon Nixon before any formal indictment actually occurs, before he even is brought up on any charges. So there's a lack of... Um, closure? Yeah, closure for the American people. Like, we understood he resigned. Now we wanted to see the truth. You know, as you mentioned, the truth is so important. And so by not really getting that, that also leads into, like you mentioned, that faith in government, that the cover-up, the power of the presidency to pardon aids in this lack of information being out in the overall public. So critics argued that he prevented America to have the full, know, know the full extent of Nixon's involvement in the scandal. But his justification for it was to spare America from this national nightmare, that it would be too difficult for us to get through. And it would be allow us to move on more quickly. Also, keep in mind, we're still fighting the Russians, right, in this ideological war of, this, of the Cold War. So, you know, what would it look like if we allowed our president to be facing some criminal uh, a a accusations or indictments, right? Uh, perhaps the Soviet Union could use that as fodder uh, to, to to talk about the the the, the corrupting nature of capitalistic uh, and uh, capitalistic democracies. So there's another reason, a strategy, always um, when 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 trying to uh, sidestep this horrible stain in our in our history. All right. Well, that brings us to the conclusion of the uh, Nixon portion of this podcast, and we'll close out the 8-4 notes with the remainder of the 1970s on the next episode. Thanks for listening.